You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, March 4th, 2021. I'm Renee Roden. And I'm Naila Dos. New legislation would replace NYPD officers in schools with mental health professionals. Logan said, I'm going to go home, get a butter knife, and I'm going to cut myself. The police came and, you know, they, they didn't do anything. Movie theaters are opening back up in New York City tomorrow, but only at 25% capacity. Some theater owners say that's not enough. I could be running all day and night, and I'm still going to run at a loss. New York bars are already open with rules limiting hours and customers. There's a long history of the city cracking down on drinking, and the results have been mixed. And it wound up allowing these thousands of saloons to serve liquor 24-7. New York became the city that never sleeps. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Karen Manirajo. Governor Andrew Cuomo has refused to resign amid allegations of sexual harassment. Cuomo said in a press conference that he was embarrassed by the allegations. He apologized and said if he made anyone feel uncomfortable, it was unintentional. But this is what I want you to know, and I want you to know this from me directly. I never touched anyone inappropriately. At least three women, including two former employees, have come forward with allegations of sexual misconduct by the governor. The attorney general will review the allegations in an independent investigation. New York is planning to launch a new COVID passport app. The Excelsior Pass was developed in partnership with IBM. It's similar to a mobile boarding pass. It will store an encrypted digital copy of test results or proof of vaccination. The app was designed for use at indoor and outdoor venues. It has already been tested twice at Madison Square Garden and Barclays Center. Union workers in Chinatown gathered on Tuesday to protest the closing of the historic Jingfang Dining Hall. They want the landlord, Alex Chu, to let the restaurant stay open past March 7th, when it's required to shift takeout and delivery. They say at least 100 workers will lose their jobs if the restaurant closes its doors. Alex Chu says Jingfang hasn't paid rent in 12 months. Jingfang has been one of the largest and most recognizable dining rooms in New York City's Chinatown district since it was opened in 1978. All five New York City district attorneys are pushing for harsher punishments for spitting on subways. Right now, it's a violation, punishable with a fine. But prosecutors want the act treated as a misdemeanor, with sentences of up to a year in jail. This follows calls from eight MTA unions for changes to the law. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Karen Manirajo. The new Johnson & Johnson vaccine makes its debut at Yankee Stadium tonight. New Yorkers will be rolling up their sleeves for the jab starting at 8 p.m. Or will they? Health authorities are hoping the vaccine will be popular because it requires just one shot. But it's a lot less effective, just 72 percent compared to over 90 percent for Moderna and Pfizer's two-shot vaccines. Haley Zhao took a ride on the D-train to talk to Bronx residents about the new vaccine and find out whether its convenience will be enough to convince people it's worth taking. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, but two long lines have already formed outside the Yankee Stadium. One is for people scheduled to get their vaccines today. The other is for residents who just want to book an appointment. 
like Julian Sewer, a home health aide. I'm here for the appointment for the J and J. I don't care where it starts. I'm just making me an appointment. Julian has an underlying condition. He has also contracted COVID twice in the last year. Getting the vaccine, any vaccine, as soon as possible is a matter of life and death for him, which is why he wants the Johnson and Johnson shot. It'll keep you out the hospital, and keep you from dying. The other ones you have to get a second shot. That's more time. They send you somewhere else three weeks later for the next shot. I want to get it and be done with it. The J and J vaccine is less effective than its two dose counterparts. But with vaccine appointments so scarce in the Bronx, many residents say they don't care. Liza Rodriguez lined up with her mother after coming up empty trying to book an appointment online. Honestly, any vaccine at this moment, anything to get on the list, you know. Any vaccine takes seven years, so all three of them are you're taking a chance. But it's better to be safer than sorry. Something、yeah. to protect us. Franklin Pena, a restaurant worker, says the fact that the vaccine is made by an established company like Johnson and Johnson gives him confidence. That company was there a long time ago. Everybody knows that company. All of the whole, whole product is very good. This is American company. You know that's what we need right now. Betty Blackburn worked at a nursing home for 33 years before she retired. She didn't get to celebrate her 60th birthday last year due to the outbreak. With her birthday coming up in two weeks, she's frustrated that she still can't have a proper celebration. I'm going on 61. Next week, 17. Still the same thing. It's too much. I pray every day. I say, Lord. Whatever here to be, I be. Me for me to take the shot, I take it and be done, you know, with it. We want to get back to normal again. I just want to be safe for my, you know, self and everybody else too. Mayor D- Mayor Bill De Blasio said he is confident that five million New Yorkers will be vaccinated by June this year. If the rest of the city is as enthusiastic about the J and J vaccine as these Bronx residents, he might just manage to hit that mark. Haley Zhao, Columbia Radio News. The Johnson and Johnson vaccine is set to roll out today in New York. It requires just one shot rather than two. But many Catholics are concerned. The vaccine used cell lines from fetuses aborted decades ago, used both in testing and production. Other vaccines like Pfizer and Moderna only use them in testing. This week, the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, a national advisory board. Released a statement advising Catholics to avoid taking the Johnson and Johnson vaccine if possible, but they have said it is essential that all Catholics take any vaccine available to them. Still, many Catholics are confused. Joining us now to discuss the Catholic community's response to the new Johnson and Johnson vaccine is Professor Christina Trena, an expert in Catholic ethics and feminist theology at Fordham University. Professor Trena, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, for those who don't understand what the issue is, can you explain what the concern is within the Catholic community with the Johnson and Johnson vaccine versus the Pfizer and Moderna vaccine? Well, both vaccines are okay to use. The idea is that it's a little bit more acceptable to use Pfizer and Moderna because they use fetal cell lines only developing the vaccine, not manufacturing it. Whereas Johnson and Johnson uses fetal cell lines. In the development and the manufacture of the vaccine, and it seems like Catholic bishops throughout the country are split and giving different directives. Some say Catholics should take the Johnson and Johnson vaccine only if no alternative is available. Some say they shouldn't at all. And I reached out to the Archdiocese of New York, and they said they did not issue a statement and are directing Catholics to the statement from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. 
a national advisory board, which seems like it's providing vague language. I think that the statement does cause confusion. It doesn't say some things that the Vatican and the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops usually do say, which is that it is a very morally weighty problem to have these diseases running around in our culture and that we are morally obligated to do everything that we can to protect ourselves and our neighbors from becoming ill. What's creating these different responses, in your opinion? It's a division within the U.S. Catholic bishops that runs along these lines. Some are more supportive of Pope Francis, and some are more supportive of the previous Pope, Cardinal, Cardinal Ratzinger, now Pope Benedict XVI, and Pope John Paul II. And... Speaking of the Pope, you know, he has taken the Pfizer vaccine and his leadership said that they could fire any leaders, any clergy who would refuse to take the Pfizer or Moderna options. But so far, the Vatican has taken a similar stance to the conference. Overall, does it matter what individual bishops say versus what the Vatican says? I think what's important to note is that the Vatican and the USCCB have both said that when it is a matter of health, both public health and personal health, one must very strongly consider taking the vaccine even if one would prefer not to have a vaccine made with fetal cells. Do you think this statement could cause more confusion about vaccines in the Catholic community? I think that the statement does cause confusion, but it doesn't say some things that the Vatican and the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops usually do say, which is that it is a very morally weighty problem to have these diseases running around in our culture and that we are morally obligated to do everything that we can to protect ourselves and our neighbors from becoming ill. On that note, what do you hope that Catholic New Yorkers take from all of this moving forward? I hope that Catholic New Yorkers who are concerned about using fetal cell lines and vaccines will do two things. One, they will get vaccinated with whatever vaccine is available to them. And two, that they will press vaccine companies, healthcare companies, to develop vaccines that don't rely on fetal cell lines. And that is what the bishops hope they will do too. <laughs> Professor Trena, Catholic theologist at Fordham University, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you very much. New York City's movie theaters are opening tomorrow for the first time in nearly a year, operating with limited capacity and other COVID protocols in place. The reopening will provide some financial relief to the industry. But as Jack Stone Truett reports, for the city's small independent cinemas, it also comes with continuing challenges. Unlike most movie theaters, Cobble Hill Cinemas in Brooklyn has had a steady stream of guests these past few months. Or rather, students. The space has been hosting nearby PS58 classes as a way for its students to be together while they learn remotely. This is basically one of the classrooms. <laughs> Andrew Elgert is standing in the cinema's main theater. He walks down the aisle towards the space between the screen and the front row. There are folding tables set up there, yellow tape strung across the maroon seats to enforce distancing, and elementary school remnants fill the room. Everything. They have toys, puzzles, board games. Elgert helps run the theater along with the Williamsburg and Kew Garden cinemas with his family. He's the one who gave his father Harvey the good news after Governor Cuomo's announcement last month that theaters would be allowed to reopen. 
which Harvey says came as a surprise to theater owners as much as anyone else. It was exciting for the first time that, oh, we could even think about being back in business after being closed for a year. But theaters will only be allowed to run at 25% capacity, and with no more than 50 people per room. Andrew says it's not a sustainable model for independent theaters like theirs. Cobble Hill Cinemas has about 600 seats. That might sound like a lot, but national chain AMC's Times Square location has 4,000. I could be running all day and night, and I'm still going to run at a loss. The nearby school pays them a bit, which helps cover the bills. But Elgert had to lay off his family's cinema staff and use up savings just to get through last year. Even before COVID, the city's local theaters were feeling the squeeze trying to compete with megaplexes and services like Netflix. So when newer theaters like the Nighthawk in Brooklyn opened up, they offered truffle butter popcorn and fish tacos along with cocktails, all delivered right to your seat. Here's owner Matthew Vera. Yeah, as far as we're concerned, yes, we're a restaurant. So last March, the Nighthawk did what many restaurants, but few theaters did, and relied on takeout and outdoor dining to keep its business afloat. And since the staff qualify as food workers, they can get vaccinated as they return to work. With the building already open and much of the staff working, Vera only needed to add a projectionist and a few more employees to be ready for tomorrow's opening, when they will be showing Nomadland and Minari. He says ticket sales so far have been good, and the Nighthawk doesn't need to fill as many seats as other theaters to make the same amount of money when its customers are ordering more expensive food and drink. But, you know, 25% is not sustainable for us either. Independent cinemas are also eager for their piece of the $15 billion set aside for some shuttered arts venues in last December's COVID relief bill. But applications aren't available yet. The CDC says going to a movie theater is still less safe than outdoor forms of entertainment. But some health experts say it's not as risky as something like indoor dining, where people are maskless and chatting. For now, theater operators say the most important part of reopening is getting audiences comfortable coming back inside the theater, even if that means running at a loss. Back at Cobble Hill Cinemas, the theater isn't opening until later this month. But operator Andrew Elgert is getting ready, changing the marquee out front for the first time since last March. Almost everybody I walked by was like, you're opening? When are you opening? Uh, what are you, what's, what are you going to show? You know, like, why aren't you? He doesn't know yet. So one big letter at a time, he spells out, reopening soon. Jack Stone Truett. Columbia Radio News. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Renee Rodin. And I'm Leila Dos. Coming up, why QAnon thinks today is an important day for Donald Trump. Lawmakers and rule breakers at New York City bars. And Christie's Auction House looks to the future with digital art. These stories and more coming up. The U.S. Capitol Police announced yesterday that they were aware of possible plans of far-right groups to attack the Capitol, today, March 4th. The attack may have been inspired by the online group QAnon. Some members believe this is the day former President Trump will be inaugurated for a second term. Arcelia Martin reports. QAnon followers believed Trump wouldn't leave office on January 20th. They thought he'd declare martial law and prevent Joe Biden from being sworn in as the 46th president of the United I'm Joseph States. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. do solemnly swear. When that didn't happen, QAnon followers came up with a new date for Trump's inauguration, March 4th. This date is based on the original inauguration day for U.S. presidents. In their view, the last legitimate president was sworn in March 4th, 1869. That would be Ulysses Grant. Number 18. So far, though, no attacks materialized. Supporters were also expected at sites like Trump Tower in Manhattan. 
Earlier today, outside the building on Fifth Avenue, there were no sign of demonstrators. Just a security guard who came out from the gold-plated glass doors as I walked closer to the short metal barricade. How's it going? I asked him if he knew of any demonstrations happening today. Not that I know of, no. Kathleen Stansberry is a professor at Elon University who studies internet communities. She says that predictions by the group start with cryptic messages from the anonymous Q, which are then interpreted into specifics, such as the March 4th inauguration. If things don't happen as expected, then it's not necessarily the anonymous source. It's not necessarily Q that is wrong. It's that it was misinterpreted. Stansberry says that within the group, the broader themes of the predictions are more important than the specifics. Are you trusting that March 4th is the day? Probably not. You're trusting that Q exists and that there are powerful people working to take down other powerful people. At its core, QAnon is a community, and the social aspects hold the group together, even when the predictions don't pan out. It's not just maybe the the difficulty of saying, well, I was wrong about this. It's also leaving groups that maybe they talk to frequently through discussion boards. It's, it, it's giving up a sense that you know something that others don't. It's changing a purpose. You feel like you're fighting for something important. And all of those are big things to, to lose. Arcelia Martin, Columbia Radio News. Schools are intended to be havens of learning, but when kids break down, police are usually the ones who deal with it. In February, a package of bills was introduced to the city council that would change the way police respond to students having psychological crises. Authors of the bills say that kids in crisis need mental health professionals, not police officers. Nicole McNulty reports. Diane Robinson remembers the day her son Logan, now 15, was beaten up by three kids in the third grade. She says that school safety agents watched the attack, stood by, and did nothing. Safety agents are NYPD officers working in schools. She says after that, every time she took Logan to school, he had an anxiety attack. He would start to shake. He'd start complaining of stomach aches. He was so afraid. He turned red. He'd start to sweat. And he'd hold on to the gate and refuse to step into that school. Her son started running away from school. And then one day, he reached a breaking point. Logan said, I'm going to go home, get a butter knife, and I'm going to cut myself. The police came, and, you know, they they didn't do anything. Logan actually hid under a table for about an hour. The safety agents at school weren't able to help, so they called Robinson, and she was finally able to coax Logan into an ambulance. Ashley Sawyer is the senior director of campaigns with Girls for Gender Equity. She says the NYPD is a poor choice to handle students in crisis. We do understand that policing has absolutely nothing to do with preventing students from having those mental health crises. The NYPD employs more than 5,000 safety agents in New York schools. It's one of the largest police forces in the country. They do everything from taking kids' temperatures to handling psychological crises. Sawyer says the schools are relying on police to do too much. She also says police tend to respond more aggressively to children of color. 
There is no training that is going to change the inherently violent and racist nature and misogynistic nature of policing, period. And so because of that, we have to make demands about investments being made so that students are not in crisis. Instead of police, Sawyer wants to see more culturally competent social workers and nurses in schools to prevent these crises from happening in the first place. I reached out to the Department of Education. They responded with a written statement saying they're hiring an additional 150 social workers to serve schools in communities hardest hit by COVID-19. Sawyer says that's progress, but not nearly enough. A few hundred social workers compared to 5,000 school cops Something's not right. One of the bills introduced last month in the city council seeks to shift safety agents from the NYPD to the Department of Education. Another establishes new procedures for police responding to students in crisis. It would also require more training in de-escalation and restorative justice techniques and limit the use of handcuffs. Rohini Singh is a staff attorney with Advocates for Children's School Justice Project and helped the council members draft the bills. She says, ultimately, police shouldn't be in schools at all. But for now, while, you know, police are still in schools and around schools, they should know what they can and can't do when it comes to a student that's experiencing an emotional crisis. Dr. Jennifer Greif Green, an associate professor at Boston University, says there's barely been any research about how police in schools affect kids. But she says the way things are structured now, everyone gets the short end of the stick police, school staff, and students. We know that students need better access to mental health services, and we know that police don't really want to be responding to mental health crises in schools. Last year, Diane Robinson enrolled her son Logan in a private school. She says he's doing much better. The package of city council bills addressing safety agents is being considered in committee. Nicole McNulty, Columbia Radio News. 1.7 million Americans are being vaccinated against COVID-19 every day but New York City is still in the grip of the pandemic. Yesterday, the city recorded more than 3,000 new COVID cases and at least 90 deaths. After nearly a year of restrictions, New Yorkers are feeling the pandemic fatigue. Many welcome the city's decision to reopen despite the risks. Movie theaters will welcome guests starting Friday and social gatherings will double in size later this month. We're joined today by Ali Hamroff, a licensed social worker and psychotherapist to talk to us about pandemic fatigue and reopening measures. Could you just explain for listeners, what is pandemic fatigue? So one way I really like to think about it is when we're exercising and we start off and we think we got this and we feel really strong. And then kind of as the rest go on, um, it gets a little harder and we get a little bit more tired. As a mental health professional, have you seen people exhibiting pandemic fatigue who haven't, you know, had have lost a loved one or, you know, haven't lost a job this year? Are they still exhibiting signs of this fatigue? I think everyone on some varying level is experiencing it. I think it's this lack of motivation, socialization. People are just kind of itching to get back out. You know, movie theaters are reopening tomorrow. Um, We kind of have these signs that things are going back to normal. Um, Is that something that you think alleviates pandemic fatigue or does it kind of create this juxtaposition of uncertainty? You know, it's not black and white anymore. I think back to March of 2020 and it was, you know, New York is in a lockdown. You can't do anything. And I think that was somewhat easier for people because it was so clear. Whereas now, you know, 
things are open and you can do something, but not everyone feels comfortable to do it. So it's this big question that I get a lot from my clients of like, what's allowed? What am I allowed to do? Will I feel guilty if I do that? Will I get COVID if I do that? Or will that make me feel better by going out? I have found that the people who are socializing um, in a safe um, way, you know, socially distanced, outdoors, wearing your mask, are getting a relief of pandemic fatigue. Is that kind of part of pandemic fatigue is not knowing how to assess risk? That's a really good question. That's where we've seen the increase in anxiety in a lot of people of not knowing what's safe, what's allowed. If you were to give listeners your top tips for how to assess risk in a way that's going to protect both your mental and physical health, what would those be? So some things that I always recommend to my clients is sticking to a routine in your day um, and stick to it as much as possible um, because that creates some stability. And this year, everything has been so uncertain and that uncertainty can create anxiety. As a mental health professional, what do you think is the most striking outcome of the pandemic from a mental health perspective? In March and April and May and June of 2020, it was about how is this happening? When is this going to end? What do I do? Like figuring out how to work from home, um, figuring out how to live with your boyfriend or, or husband. Um, while now it's almost become a little normal. And I think people are now starting to worry about wait, what is life going to look like when I go back to work? And, and figuring out how are we going to re-enter the world? And I think that's going to be a, a bigger challenge than we might anticipate. Ali, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. And now, the latest from our series, New York Moments. With the horses, we are having fun in this beautiful park, you know? It is my office. <laughs> Mary! Say hello, baby. Oh, it's a microphone. It's not an edible thing, baby. <laughs> She's looking for some carrots, by the way. Henry, a horse carriage driver in Central Park. My boss is my cousin. He said, Henry, I have a carriages and something in the Central Park. Would you like to ride? And um, I can teach you everything. And you can be the horse and carriage driver. I said, okay. We have beautiful customers from all around the world. Basically, all families and romantic couples are coming. We're spending a great time in the park. Nice jokes, nice photos, and great history in New York City, you can feel stressful. And then you can come over here, spend time with the animals, you can feed them, you can wash them. You're spending like good time with the animal and boom, you don't have any stress anymore. You're listening to Uptown Radio from Columbia Radio News. Podcast available Thursdays at 5 p.m. The auction house Christie's is shaking up the art world with a new listing, and it's completely digital. The current bid is three and a half million. Now the art world is wondering, will this change how art is valued? Fei Lu has the story. Christie's has a new listing titled Every Days, The First 5,000 Days. It's by the American artist Beeple. The piece is a multicolored collage of images, a gradient from light to dark, created over 5,000 days. But it's digital, so why pay for art anyone can take a screenshot of or download? Andrew Perkins is a co-founder of SuperRare, a marketplace for digital art. So, you know, if you have a JPEG, or an MP3, as we know, you can, you know, I could email you uh, the image and then we both have it. It's there, you know, they're free to copy, um, basically infinitely copyable. And that's how the internet works. Perkins says with digital art, the pieces are just normal GIFs or JPEGs. 
but one thing makes digital art collectible, digital tokens. Um, but what has changed is we now have a digital object that is truly scarce, um, and that's the token itself. Some tokens are used as currency, like Bitcoin, but other tokens have uses like authenticating art. Those tokens are called NFTs. An NFT is a non-fungible token, sometimes called a nifty. That's Amy Whittaker. She's an NYU professor specializing in art business. Fungible tokens can be duplicated. NFTs, or non-fungible tokens, can't. There's only one Mona Lisa, just like each NFT is unique. NFTs exist on blockchain networks. Each block in the blockchain is a ledger, permanently recording information, like art ownership. So NFTs allow digital art to be rare, just like traditional paintings or sculptures. You might have um, a piece by Warhol and another piece by Warhol, but they're not technically interchangeable. And the fact that NFTs allow digital images to be put in a container that allows them to function as an original object, even if those images are also um, replicated and widely available. The pandemic might be the perfect environment for NFTs too. Andrew Raftery teaches printmaking, engraving, and ceramics at the Rhode Island School of Design. And it actually seems really um, kind of appropriate that um, this, um, people would be testing the waters right now on something that goes beyond um, just buying an object online. Skeptics of digital art say it isn't, quote, real, that art needs to be a traditional, tangible object, something an artist makes with their hands. But Raftery says the art world has a history of skepticism towards technology, like when photography first came out, or more recently in the 60s when Andy Warhol adopted commercial screen printing techniques into its practice, permanently changing printmaking. But, you know, using the whole online medium to introduce a new work of art. Um, and, and actually that that would be the art, or, you know, that the art would exist in that way. I think it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating moment. It's not traditional, but it can be profitable. Andrew Perkins says his company, SuperRare, did over $10 million in volume selling digital work in February. He says that some of the art market are nervous digital art might disrupt traditional practices, but he's optimistic about NFT's future. I think people are very kind of like open-minded and, and fascinated by this. Um, and I think, you know, Christie's uh, selling its first NFT um, in this people sale is, is an indicator of that. Um, I do think that what's happening, we're, what we're seeing now is a whole new digital, um, digitally native breed of collectors on the rise. Um, and I think that's going to really revolutionize the art market. The art market will better understand how revolutionary NFT art is in seven days. That's when Christie's people sale ends. Fei Lu, Columbia Radio News. When the pandemic broke out last year, strict rules were issued for COVID safety in restaurants and bars. But the pushback was immediate. New Yorkers don't like their bars regulated. But the city has a long history of controlling what happens in bars for all kinds of reasons. And as Kat Smith reports, New Yorkers have always found creative ways around those rules. This bar in Harlem is a typical neighborhood joint. Wood paneling on the walls, dim lighting. When I walked up to the bartender with my microphone on a quiet afternoon, she asked that I not use her name or the name of the business. She said she's afraid of losing her job and the bar's liquor license. I ordered a beer and they didn't make me order food. They said they don't enforce that rule anymore. And then they asked me if I was a cop. The New York State rules for city bars do currently say that drinks can't be served without food. 
Indoor seating is at 30 percent, and social distancing must be observed. But on some nights, this bar features live music and a packed house. When rules come down that New Yorkers don't like, they find ways of evading them. And that's always been the case. David Wandrich is author of several books on nightlife culture and drink history. He says that the government has long tried to control what happens in bars. It goes back to slave rebellions in the 18th century that were planned in bars. The powers that be have always been very nervous about what happens in bars. Bars have always been portals to uh, people out of control and planning things that the powers aren't so interested in. And New Yorkers don't like being told what to do in their favorite pubs. Richard Zacks is the author of Island of Vice, about efforts in the 1890s to curb gambling, prostitution, and excessive drinking in saloons and dance halls. Sunday drinking was already illegal at that time, but, he says, few people took the rules seriously, especially on the crowded Lower East Side, where there were thousands of saloons. After a 60-hour work week, customers could unwind for a nickel a drink on their only day off. New York had a big drinking problem. Two-thirds of all arrests were for drunk and disorderly. And women were frankly fed up with having drunken husbands who squandered the paycheck. So a new law was passed called the Reigns Law of 1896 to get tough with bars. And the law seems pretty straightforward. It says you can't serve liquor from midnight on Saturday till 5 a.m. Monday. But the law was riddled with loopholes. Hotels could serve on Sundays. So bar owners threw up a few walls, creating tiny rooms in back. And they could keep slinging liquor if they served a meal with each drink. Pretty soon they realized no one had to eat the food. As long as a plate was on the table, cops were okay. So bars started serving what became known as Rain's sandwiches. They used them over and over, sometimes for weeks. They were stale bread, mummified ham, rock-hard cheese. I mean, they started turning green. They were disgusting. The restrictive law ended up making the drinking problem worse. And it wound up allowing these thousands of saloons to serve liquor 24-7. There was no time they couldn't serve it, and it, New York became the city that never sleeps. In 1920, the fight to curb public drinking went national, and liquor was outlawed during Prohibition. In New York, the saloons all closed, but tens of thousands of illegal speakeasies opened in their place. There's bootleg liquor on every American lip shiny flask on every hip. By the middle 1920s, nightlife is having its heyday, for America's dry and high. Today, crowded bars present community health risks more than moral ones, but history suggests many New Yorkers will continue to find ways to dodge the limits on places where they can get together and drink. Kat Smith, Columbia Radio News. As the one-year anniversary of New York City's lockdown approaches, Renee Roden shares the story of a surprising friendship that blossomed during quarantine. Gordon first entered our lives in 2018. My friend Joey had a party where we met the new roommate he'd been so stoked about. I found a Scottish guy, Joey said, and he seems super cool. Gordon is very cool and very hot. He's trim and tall, about 6'1". He's got sandy hair I would describe as ginger, much to his chagrin. Uh, and his eyes are different colors, one green and one blue. Joey describes him as a fox. I assumed he'd have the personality of a doorknob. I didn't really have much interest in getting to know Gordon. I'm a theater dork. He's an insurance underwriter. 
I figured he was sort of a basic New York business boy with a dash of Scottish and a touch of gay. Plus, I had a really hard time understanding his accent. Lockdown changed all of that. Our quarantine pod was like a little ship crew, and 2020 was an all-hands-on-deck moment. We took care of each other. And I discovered Gordon was pretty good at taking care of me. One time, I had biked down the Hudson River Greenway to meet him at a Black Lives Matter protest and arrived late, stressed and sweaty. Gordon met me a few minutes after I docked at the city bike station. He held my sign while I rummaged through my backpack. He listened to me vent. And I felt everything was going to be okay. In moments like that, where I'm scattered or overwhelmed, Gordon is a concrete presence who grounds me. People sometimes mistake us for a couple. It happens a fair amount, and it's become kind of a running joke. But I wonder if those people are picking up on how I depend on him to calm me down, to buy the extra seltzer for the party, to gossip about the boys we're pursuing, to just be there. A few weeks ago, Gordon announced he was leaving, going 3,000 miles away home to Scotland next month. I put on my best supportive face. I mean, I get it. He hasn't seen his parents, his best friend, or his nephew for over a year. But the next day I called my mom sobbing and said, I know things are going to change, but I'm not ready for them to change yet. I feel like I'm okay with leaving, even though it's difficult. It, it is probably though, but it is. <laughs> it, is it is the right thing to do, uh, I suppose. It is. It is. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. People don't always stay with you. They come and go. Gordon's going to go. He's going back home to Glasgow where the flat he owns is waiting for him. He's going to find a nice London boy like the Taylor Swift song says. And he's going to see the seals flop up the beach at his parents' house on Tyree. But even when 2020 is in the distant past, I want to believe that Gordon will be very present to me because he cared for us, for me, this year. And I want to think, I hope, that that sort of love stays with you, even when they go. Renee Roden, Columbia Radio News. That does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Executive producer Kate Stockroom ran our show today. Senior producer Megan Zarez led our staff of reporters with help from assistant producer Nicole McNulty. Senior editor Katie Anastas and assistant editor Kat Smith led our copy team. Fei Lu managed our website today, and Arcelia Martin, Haley Zhao, and Karen Manarajo brought us today's news. Thanks to our instructors Sally Herships, Ben Shapiro, and Patty Hirsch. I'm Renee Roden. And I'm Lila Dos. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Thursday evenings. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening. <laughs>